0: You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. So I'm here with Michael Jones. Tell me a little bit about what you do um, on YouTube. What's your sort of deal that you like to do and how do you like to approach life?
1: So I just got my uh, philosophy degree. I got a master's in that and I'm a Christian apologist. Good for you. Uh, And so I build a lot of different graphic driven animation style videos defending the Christian faith. A lot of stuff on New Testament, arguments for God's existence, stuff on Old Testament as well. I've been doing a lot on that lately because not a lot of apologists have tackled the Old Testament in depth, and so I wanted to do that.
0: Okay, so you, you really like to focus on the uh, Old Testament.
1: I, I do. I really enjoy the Old Testament. Genesis is still my favorite book of the Bible, I would say. Uh, but. It's also one of those things, it's like no one's been in this area, why not go into that area? So let's talk about the Old Testament. All right. Man, I don't know if there's anything that gets everybody, does it, on your channel, do people get bent out of shape when you do the Old Testament stuff, especially Genesis stuff? I, I get a lot of people bent out of shape, but I also get a lot of really good testimonies from it, going, okay. thank you, I finally got an answer to this, I have been thinking about this for a long time. Okay, It's so nice to actually see there's something there.
0: So what is what is your, like, on an elevator speech, what is your approach to Genesis 1 and 2?
1: When we look at it, we gotta study it in its ancient Near Eastern context. Okay, That's that's the type of document it is. Okay. It was not written uh, to a modern audience. It can be written for a modern audience, as John Walton would say. Okay. But it was written to them. We gotta study it in their cultural understanding.
0: So I just recently had John Walton in. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest kicks, or kickbacks, or um, pushbacks, kickback is money, um, pushback that he gets is that he's reading just a bunch of stuff into the Bible and it's just, it's so easy to see that Genesis 1 is just a seven day, 24 hour literal creation. How could you miss that? Um, and people have even accused John of like deceiving people, not believing in God's word. What do you say? Cause I mean, if you have a very similar take in some mm-hmm. ways that John Walton, what do you say to people that say that to you?
1: Well, I would say uh, what, in the English, in, in yeah, the like, so, so, like so, for instance, say somebody... Well, that's what I say to them. You mean in the English it's like that, right? Okay. And they go, yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew, okay? So what does it say in the Hebrew? Does it say what you think it does, or does it say something else?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, what, what, what's their statement to that? They don't know Hebrew.
1: They, they don't know, but they, they think they, they know it well enough, or God would have translated it perfectly. And I'm like, okay. But that doesn't mean there's all this cultural context that it comes with the translation. So if I were to say to you, I saw a car flying down the road, does that mean in a thousand years they're going to think I was believing flying cars were around? Because they don't understand the cultural context that flying is just an idiom or just hyperbole to mean the car was going really fast. Yeah. Or it could have actually gone into the air because it went over something and it was flying through the
0: air, but it wasn't flying through the air like the way maybe they'll be flying through the air in a thousand years from now. Right. You know, if, if we're still around. Um, so when because this is this is the pushback on... on uh, people is that, okay, Well, you you don't take Genesis literally, which I, I would assume you would say that's not true, I am taking Genesis literally. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, kick, the pushback would be, um, you're not taking Genesis literally, and if you're not gonna take God's word literally, then the next thing you're gonna do is you're gonna say that the flood wasn't a flood. The next thing you're gonna do is you're gonna say Jesus really didn't die on the cross. The next thing you're gonna do is <laughs> say that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. That tends to be somewhat of the sequential argument. What do you say to that? Because there's people out there that are passionate. I mean, we've got
1: I've got comments on stuff that I did with Walton. I mean, they are passionate. This guy's a yeah. heretic, this guy's crazy. I always say, well, maybe you're right. Maybe if we start taking Genesis 2.24, not literally, that means we're gonna take the rest of the Bible, not literally. I mean, do you really think that when a man and a woman are married, they become one flesh? Or do you recognize that is also a metaphor in the Genesis account? No one takes that literally. Does that mean you're going to take the rest of the Bible non-literally. It it, it doesn't work. It's a slippery sure. slope fallacy.
0: Yeah. So, but we do believe that the literal way to take one flesh is to say that that they become sort of one in a unit in, in the sense of you know being being married. So, um, you you would just say that the literal way to take it is to understand within the genre right. and the way that it's written. So, that being said, tell me how you look at Genesis one and two. You you look at it as that it's written. Um, to a group of people at a specific time um, in an ancient Near Eastern way that they would have readily understood it, but sort of foreign to the way that we might read it, just
1: initially. Exactly. They were not interested in questions that we were interested in. They were not asking, where did matter come from? When did time begin? Those are questions we ask in a post-Aristotelian world. In the ancient Near East, they just assumed matter, time, space were there. They were more interested in who's controlling the heavens, who gives fertility, uh, who controls the cosmos, Well, the authors of Genesis 1 are saying, well, Yahweh does, God does. It's not these pagan deities you may have heard of. Um, Really, it's this one God. He controls everything. He doesn't have to do battle with a cosmic deity because he is just God. He is ultimate and supreme. That's who's really in control of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So that's what Genesis 1 is trying to show. That's its main goal. Everything else is secondary to that main goal.
0: So what do you say to someone who says, well, if if you can just read it, and you don't take it literally, which would mean you know the way they're seeing it. Typically when people say literally, they mean my interpretation, that's my take on things. Um, so they say, you're not reading it the way I do, which is a literal seven day creation, which means now you're not gonna read a literal Adam and Eve. And if you don't read a literal Adam and Eve, then how do we have Jesus talking about Adam and you know mm-hmm. redeeming and Paul saying that Adam brought death? Because if you read it that way, then you might be allowing the world to be old, and you might be allowing the world to have other ways in which God did create, and surely you wouldn't be bringing in evolution because evolution would create a problem. You're very familiar with all of these right. things that people say. Um, and would you agree that, I mean, I, think, I don't think that every one of them is trying to be dishonest. I think they really believe this is like a, a hill to die on. Like if, you know, if it's Genesis is not literal, and Adam and Eve are not literal. This is the hill to die on. I mean, we, you gotta, what, what do you say to that person? Cause they're out there, they're gonna watch you cause there, there's enough of our stuff out there where people are gonna see this interview and, and there's gonna be comments. This guy's wrong, he's deceiving people.
1: What, what, what do you say to that person? Well, I do believe in a real Adam and Eve that they were historical uh-huh. figures. Um, I just, so I do believe when the scripture says that they were there, I just don't agree with their entire interpretation. Okay. And I, I would remind them, this is just a slippery slope fallacy. Just because Judges 5 is metaphorical for a battle that happened in Cain, that doesn't mean Judges 4 is. Just because Jesus said, I'm the true vine, that doesn't mean Jesus was not an historical figure and he's just a plant somewhere. We have to understand genre, language that's being used. Like I gave my analogy earlier, if I saw a car flying down the road, you know that car and road are literal, but flying is metaphorical. So you can mix in that kind of stuff. And it's right there in Genesis, Genesis 2:24 a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, they're not merging bodies. We understand it's just talking about having a union. It's not literally going to be one body walking around, flesh Mm -hmm. body walking around. So use some common sense to start. Then let's start studying uh, what the ancient audience would have thought when they heard this stuff. What were the ancient authors trying to portray when they said this stuff? Okay. So what were they trying to portray to the readers of this text? I think the best way to do it is to ask what the prophet Jeremiah was doing. So the prophet Jeremiah, even very conservative scholars would say in Jeremiah chapter four, Jeremiah is referencing Genesis one. Okay. He's using very similar language. Testament. You just gotta read it. And he says, look, guys, the Northern kingdom, that's gonna become you, Judah, if you do not shape up. They are now tohu and bohu, formless and void. There's no men up there, there's no light, there's no birds of the earth, there's no vegetation. He's saying, look, they went from an ordered kingdom, they're now disordered. Genesis 1 is the exact same language in reverse. God took a disordered chaos, and he ordered it to properly function the way he wanted to. And we see that right in the first few chapters, because God says the earth was formless and void. Formless and void are not the best translation. David Samuru, who's a scholar, did a full semantic analysis of the word tohu. And he says it most likely means unproductive. It's used in the Bible to refer to useless idols, a wasteland, a wilderness, something that's just not it functioning as it should. So God shows up, heavens and the earth, formless and void. They're not productive. Robert Alter translated, translates it as welter and waste. Mm. So he, God shows up and says, okay, earth is here, but it's not where I want it to be yet. It's unproductive. So I'm now going to, over the next seven days, make it be productive, make it be what it's supposed to be. And all we have to do is look at Jeremiah because he uses that language in reverse to explain how the northern kingdom went from productive to unproductive. Um, most people think that
0: there is a section of chapter one through chapter 11, mm-hmm. and, then, and then there's a the natural progress into chapter 12. Mm-hmm. W- what is going on, in your opinion, if you take a le- one through 11, is there is there a narrative? Is there, yes. is, there, is there some themes that
1: you're seeing there? What what do you see there? There's a lot of themes, okay. where I begin. The biggest theme is it's the degradation of humanity. It okay. starts off with Adam. Adam sins. Then in Genesis four, his firstborn son sins, and then his family, Cain's family, goes with him. Then in Genesis six, we see the fall of human civilization. Now everyone is sin. So we go from the fall of man, the first priest, to the fall of the family, to the fall of the civilization. God resets everything with a flood, starts over. Noah is in a garden. He, he's called a man of the soil, like, man, like Adam was a man of the dust. He's in a garden, he's corrupted by fruit, there's a tempter in the story, it's just his son Ham who tempts his brothers. Uh, that seed, that, mm-hmm. that tempter's seed is cursed just like the serpent's seed is cursed in Genesis 3. So again, it sets up again. You have Noah falls, he becomes drunk. Then his family falls, His Ham is cur- Ham and his descendants are cursed. Then in Genesis 11, after the table of nations, civilization has once again corrupted itself God has to disperse them all over. And then he starts over with a whole new man, Abraham. So it's this theme, fall of man, fall of family, fall of civilization. Repeat, fall of man, fall of family, fall of civilization, repeat, start with Abraham. And then finally, we start to get some upticks out of this chaos we've gotten ourselves in. So one of the main themes of Genesis 1 is when man abandons God's plan, it just has a rippling effect. Things just start to get corrupt. It just starts to get ruined and only God by coming in and giving us a descendant through Abraham, which was considered miraculous because Isaac was a miraculous birth, do things start to change. So God's plan is what's gonna get us out of it, starting with a new seed. The serpent's seed was corrupting and destroying. God's seed is Isaac, who is now going to begin the seed of the promise that's gonna lead us out of this.
0: What is not historical Christianity about that?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I mean, I mean, that's pretty down the line, almost everybody that's ever written about Christianity Mankind disobeyed God, fell, we need a redeemer, all of that. Um, could, we, could we possibly be getting messed up by trying to figure out how to read Genesis 1 and missing these larger, big stones that are so important to our faith? Is that possible? Oh,
1: absolutely. And there's so many rich nuggets in Genesis 1 to 11. You know, I remember N.T. Wright was talking about how a lot of Jewish commentators during Jesus' day didn't talk so much about that because they just assumed that, you know, it was basically fixed by the time of Moses. Okay. And Paul comes on and goes, no, it hasn't. And there's so many themes that with Christianity connect back to Genesis 1 to 11 that we've missed that are all in there. And it's all about how humanity keeps ruining itself. And we need God to keep coming back and fixing it. And that's exactly what <laughs> Christianity is. Yeah, Jesus coming
0: back and fixing everything. That's a good point. So what are, you, you said you love the Old Testament. You love, what are, what, are, what are some of your passionate things in the Old Testament, things that you love to talk about?
1: Well, I love talking about exodus. Okay. Talk about, let's, talk, sure. let's
0: talk about the exodus. Um, there's a lot of people out there that are like, there's no historical evidence <laughs> for the exodus. You I mean, had to have heard this. I mean, yeah. I've heard it, and I don't even do what you do. So, you know, um, what do you say to people who go, there's no historical evidence? I watched some movie on some TV program that said there's nothing at all. You know, this is all just a creation, you know, mm-hmm.
1: of, of, of stuff. There was no way. How, what would you do? How would you explain? There are so many different lines of evidence that if they were all just by themselves, it wouldn't amount to much. But when you take them all, it's a cumulative case. Okay. So think think of um, one thing. Most scholars say the Exodus happened during the Ramesside period. This is under Ramesses II. This fits with how Exodus is written. The topodens in Exodus fit with the Ramesside period. Does not fit earlier, does not fit later. The topodens we have, some can fit with a later date, some can fit with earlier dates, but the all the topodens together point right to a Ramesside period. Guess what happens right in the middle of the Ramesside period? There is a city, there is a Semitic city just south of P. Ramaziz, the capital, called Avaris. It's abandoned during the Ramesside period. The Semitic population leaves. Uh, the, nat- the, uh, nat- the Egyptians there use it as a cemetery after that. So it's populated, it's abandoned. The Egyptians use it as a cemetery after that. About 40 years later, around 1220, 1225 BC, there was a population explosion in Canaan that starts to happen with the beginning of the Iron Age, around 1200. So about a generation later in Canaan, there's new sites. These new sites lack pig bones, by the way. Uh, this is the first time Israel is mentioned as existing in Canaan, according to the Berneptus A. So e- Egypt is even acknowledging that Israel was in Canaan around 1200. And again, about a generation prior, Avaris has been abandoned. Topodens fit in the Book of Exodus with the Ramesside period. Even the Ark of the Covenant, uh, Dr. David Falk, Scott Nogle have written stuff on this. They've shown that the Ark of the Covenant fits with Egyptian customs from the Ramesside period. Mm. You go back any further, it doesn't fit. Go back too late, doesn't fit either. So the Ark of the Covenant fits with people coming out of an Egyptian mindset going, we need to make this special sacred uh, co- uh, Ark to honor God. What are we going to use? We're going to use stuff that's familiar with us, stuff we know. So they're going to use the same sort of stuff they learned when they were in Egypt. So there's that. There's toponyms. there's names. Richard Hess, for example, has done analysis on the names of an exodus. And he said, these are second millennium names from Egypt and from West Semitic cultures. Mm-hmm. If someone was writing this in the Iron Age, they would not have been able to make up these names. They all fit with time periods of the second millennium. Some don't even fit with the first millennium. There's all sorts of great evidence. And when you take all of that and you combine it together, you get a pretty strong case for the exodus. So on my channel, I did a three-part okay. documentary series called Exodus, rediscovered. We went through Exodus, the wandering period and conquest, and we went through all of this and there's so much. So really what I just sort of do with that is I just start bullet, like little bullets. What about this? What about this? There's no evidence for the Exodus? What about this, 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 this? And eventually there's just a cumulative case there. Do you have people,
0: if they've seen what you've done, are, are there any things that you hear that are pushbacks against that or are the only pushback you get people who didn't pay any attention
1: to what you said? I've not gotten any serious pushback yet. I hope to get some more. Maybe there's something I missed. Okay. But typically, it's people that saying, not enough evidence, or let me just quote this book that's 20 years old, mm-hmm. and that'll prove that you're wrong. And I'm like, well, I used a lot of modern stuff. Like for my documentary series, I used the latest reports on Jericho, which of course align with a, a change that happened in Jericho around 1200. So right when Joshua's coming in, something happens at Jericho, it goes from a fortified city to a small town which fits with the Exodus account, because in Judges, it's called the City of Palms. It's mm-hmm. no longer a fortified city. So we see a change happening around that exact same time according to the latest reports. So I'm trying to use the latest report, latest data I can, and work with Egyptologists on this. Okay, that's really uh, interesting. Have you been to Israel yourself? I have not, I
0: have not. I'm you not. should go. Um, I, I take a trip, I, you gotta go. Um, we I, we go every year, well, we missed the last two years because of COVID, but uh, it's uh, um, it's really um, to see that as a, uh, is, is an awesome thing. What do you what do you say to somebody who goes, you know, man, the you know, God of the Old Testament, man, he's killing everybody, he's killing women, you know, he's killing kids, and you know, mm-hmm. Jesus comes on the scene, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek.
1: What's what's up? Well, first I remind them of, of a book called the Book of Jonah, okay. which clearly shows the opposite, where Jonah is willing, or God is willing to use Jonah to spare an entire city, <laughs> right then and there, only if they just do a little repenting. Like they don't make a covenant with God, they just do a little mm-hmm. repenting. Mm-hmm. And I also say, well, first of all, God is God. He has a right to, over all of life, Mm -hmm. he can do what he wants. Mm -hmm. If he can see the future for a certain community and know there's nothing good, he has a right to destroy them. Uh, Do the same with Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham said to God, look, if there's just 10 righteous people, will you spare it? He said, absolutely. I'm willing to spare all of this, this horrible city if there was just 10 righteous, but Mm -hmm. he couldn't find it. I think a lot of people, when it comes to the God of the Old Testament, they'll say things like, they have this idea that humans are good, they're just naturally good. So we've been raised in what I would call Disney culture, where we're okay. just sort of taught that we're all good people, it's wonderful. And we have this misconception that's counter to the Bible where it says, no, we are sinners. We seek ourself first, our own self-interest. That's what we care most about. So when we see the God actually doing something, punishing sin, we're, we're, we're upset, but he has every right to because he's a just God. Yeah, but we get mad at him though when he doesn't punish it. Exactly. So
0: it's like we can't have it both ways. We can't go, well, where's God and all the stuff that's going on in the world? <laughs> and then when he does something that we don't like in the Old Testament, we go, oh, he's a mean God. Is that is that a fair? Absolutely. And
1: even scholars like, for example, uh, Lawrence Stagger, Nicholas okay. Wolterstorff have noted a lot of the rhetoric in the Old Testament is what we would call a hagiographic hyperbole. So in the ancient Near Eastern Annals, sometimes they would say things like, we've utterly annihilated the Mitanni Empire. The Egyptians would say this. We left none of their soldiers alive standing. And then a couple of years later, they're fighting the Mitanni Empire. again. Well, I thought you said you annihilated every single one of them. This is ancient Near Eastern war hyperbole. In the Annals, they talk about utter annihilation, wiping out everything that breathed. The Assyrians did it, the Sumerians did it, the Egyptians, the Hittites, they all did this. Guess what Joshua is doing? Same thing. When he's saying that he went into an area and left alive none that breathed, It's just like saying, my favorite sports team utterly annihilated the other sports team. They were utterly destroyed. None, They just won a sports game. They did not actually murder everyone. Same type of ancient Eastern war rhetoric. And we see that in Joshua. Because it says, at the end in Joshua 23 and 24, it says, do not chase after the gods of the people living among you. Okay, they weren't annihilated, they're still there. This happens quite often. And so we can see this hyperbolic context in Joshua.
0: So what do you say to somebody who says to you, yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but man, like I'd have to do a lot of work then to read my Bible. It makes it like this elite book. Like how would I know about hyperbole? How would I know about, you know, uh, um, hagiography? Um, How would I know about war rhetoric? How would I know about the ancient Near Eastern stuff? How would I know about any of that stuff without studying, and and I just thought that me and the Lord could just open up the
1: Bible and he'd teach me. So Paul reminds us we are to imitate Christ. Okay, he also says imitate himself. Both Paul and Jesus studied the scriptures. Hmm. Guess what we have to do? Okay, Uh, my daughter right now is seven. She asks if she can go play with a friend or go outside in the yard and play, sure. But when she's 24, I hope she's not doing that anymore because I want her to mature and grow and learn to think for herself. Mm God wants us to think for ourselves and to learn to be mature thinking adults that study things, that learn to grow in knowledge Mm -hmm. and wisdom. He wants us to imitate Christ who did that. Guess what we're all called to do? We're not all called to be children for the rest of our lives in how we think and know stuff. We're called to love God with a childlike heart, but we're not called to have childlike minds forever. We're called to mature Mm -hmm. and grow constantly. So would you say to somebody out there who, uh
0: just has sort of this devotional reading of scripture, you pick it up, maybe read something here, maybe pick up a devotional or whatever. How would you instruct them to start to move forward in their life to maybe becoming a little bit better student of God's Word? Is there any,
1: anything you found that could help? Yeah, I would say, for, for example, read commentaries. There's okay. a reason that study Bibles exist, because scholars have worked on them, not just with the translations, but also providing context for you to read. So that's a good place to start. And there's nothing wrong with reading as a devotional. I mean, we should learn mm-hmm. from the scriptures and see how what we can take away from that. I mean, like we are gonna have our battles, study battles in the Bible, and you know, we can learn from that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to go a step further, see what scholars are saying. There are people that have studied their lives, spent their lives just studying one aspect of the Bible to try to get us better understanding, mm-hmm. better context of it. Do that. They they are giving their research out to us as a gift, and we should use it. What are some commentaries that you like?
0: Anything accessible to an average person that you go, this is one I like? So I like uh,
1: NIV application commentary. Okay, and the NIVAG. Yeah, that's okay. a pretty good one to start. Okay. NASB has a pretty good commentary they use. Uh, there's something called the IVP Bible Background Commentary. Okay. Also really good. Uh, Robert Alter has a good translation on the Hebrew Bible. He's a Jewish scholar. Okay. But he's also got a good commentary that goes with it. Uh, those are good places to start. New Testament, anything by Craig Keener is going to be great. Okay. Craig Keener is just like, Phenomenal in his research, as well as RT France, FF Bruce. These are good commentaries to check out. You notice if you're a scholar, you have
0: to have um, initials in your name: FF, RT, NT. Right? You have to. Exactly. James DG Dunn. You, you just have to do that. So um, th- those are all good. Um, uh, com- the bottom line is, is that there's also. I- I'm a big proponent of people taking some of their money. You know, I mean, it's as Christians we should be looking at it is that we're stewards of what God has given to us. Um, It wouldn't take long, you know, if you didn't maybe eat out a couple times a week or maybe save some on some coffee or whatever else, made it at home, wouldn't take long to purchase um, a a, a small basic package of like a Bible software. Right. I find those things are incredible. Very useful. You know, to help. Um, And then what you can do is you can build your library. You know, then you can search stuff uh, really good. What are some other things in the Old Testament that get you excited? What about... Polygamy. What do you say about oh.
1: it? Is that people get, did do they do they raise that for you? Oh yes, and okay. I, I will say that I have actually done a little bit of research on this lately. Leviticus 18.18 18 is a very interesting verse because it says, you cannot marry a woman to her sister. And they, the way it's typically translated as, you cannot marry a woman's sister if you're already married to her. That's not really what it meant. A lot of scholars have done some research on this. Okay. and They have said that it's actually an idiom. The phrase a woman to her sister and a man to her brother typically shows up in the Bible to mean another. Okay. It just is an idiom to say, don't marry another. So what Leviticus 18.18 18 is saying in an is- And an idiom,
0: just in case anybody doesn't know, is, is a figure of speech. that, right. that it's like, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, is right. an idiom. We, we know what that means, mm-hmm. but if you don't know what the idiom means, you might think I'm eating a horse. So what you're saying is is that this is this is a use of a Hebrew idiom, mm-hmm. where it has a meaning of, rather than don't marry your, what it was it, your-
1: Marry your- Wife's sister. It really means don't marry somebody else. Don't marry someone else. If you already have a wife, don't marry another is what it's saying. Okay. Now people go, well, there's all this polygamy in the Old Testament. And I'm like, okay, description versus prescription. The Bible clearly prescribes no polygamy in Leviticus 18. Just because it happened, that does not mean God wanted it to happen. Jesus is very clear in Matthew 19. In the beginning, they were made male and female. That's the what I wanted. And I told you quite clearly in Genesis 2 that this is the way it's supposed to be. So Leviticus 18, 18 backs that up. It says, look, this is what God wants. You only have one wife. Just because it happened, does not mean God can work through these sinful fallen people. Mm. That's what we need to keep in mind. But also when it comes to Genesis, notice what happens every anytime polygamy or primogeniture shows up in the Bible. Primogeniture is the idea that your oldest son gets the inheritance. So, you know, uh, Isaac wants to give his oldest son, Esau, the inheritance. Anytime primogeniture or polygamy shows up in the Bible, the narrators, the, the authors narrate it in a way that it always has disastrous effects. So the first guy that is polygamous is in Genesis 4, Lamech. He's got two wives and he's sinful. He's uh, sinning against God. Mm-hmm. He's very violent. He's on the wrong path. Abraham does it, strife between Sarah and Hagar. Then you have um, Jacob's multiple wives, strife between his sons. Okay. Anytime polygamy is showing up in Genesis, the authors are saying, this is bad. Look at how bad it results. Okay. So the authors of the Pentateuch were very clear. They wanted Israel to think that polygamy was bad. Genesis 2, the narrative structure in Leviticus 18.18, they're trying to put out this idea that we shouldn't be doing this, guys. This is not what God wants. And then Jesus backs it up in Matthew 19. You mentioned uh, in
0: Matthew 19 that Jesus said it was male and female from the beginning. Um, What do you say to people today that say, well, it's not male and female, there's X amount of genders, there's gender fluidity, <laughs> there's all of that. What is your, what is your comment to someone? I mean, maybe somebody who's out there who um, really feels maybe that's the case in their life. You know, they have Because you know, I always, I don't counsel as much anymore as a pastor, um, but when I used to counsel more, um, I would always say you know, to someone, hey, feelings are valid. Like they feel the way they feel. Doesn't mean that how they got there is necessarily right but their feelings, I mean, you've, everybody's had a time where you thought somebody was talking about you and you felt bad, and then a, maybe three minutes later you found out they were talking about going to the baseball game, and you realized they're not talking about it. Now you're feeling completely different based on what's going on in the input. What do you say to someone out there um, who one would argue that there's multiple genders or somebody who's struggling with this idea? W- what does scripture say about this? What, what's, the, what's the Christian stance here on this particular It thing? is
1: very clear in the Bible there are two genders, male and female. There is never anything other. Science shows that as well. And people will say, well, there's chromosomes?" chromosome. Oh, hold on. That's not what gender is. If you're male, you have the active SRY gene and working androgen receptors. If you're missing both or one, you're female. There is no in-between. That is what science says. It's defined by this gene. Bible affirms that as well. There are only two genders. Now, if you feel that you're different, uh, okay, that's how you feel, but feelings do not determine what the truth is, hmm. I could feel like uh, I could feel like you know that I'm king of the world. That's not going to make it true. <laughs> I could feel like I'm always right. People feel they're right like they're right all the time. That that's doesn't true. make it true. That's right. So you got to be able to separate facts from feelings. You may feel that way, but that's not that's just for you. And you cannot force me to go along with your feelings. Hmm. So where do you what do you want from me? Do you want me to, to go along with your feelings? Well, that's just not going to work. I'm interested in what the truth is. Truth is, there are just two genders and I stand by that because mm-hmm. sure. I have seen no data that shows the opposite other than sure. people feel that way in their brain. That's not good enough for me. So, and the Christian response needs to be needs to stand firm on that because that is what the Bible has always taught. Mm-hmm. There is no way to think there is anything other than that.
0: You mentioned the word truth. Do you know what the Greek word for truth
1: is? Logos? No, that's uh, word. Um,
0: oh, the Greek okay. word for truth is aletheia. Oh, okay. Aletheia. And, um, you probably are familiar with the alpha privative. When we, in English, we put a a in front of something like atypical, it means not typical. Mm-hmm. Um, so the alpha privative in front of lethe lethe is the Greek river of forgetfulness. <laughs> Aletheia is that which cannot be forgotten. Interesting. Isn't that cool? That's a cool. Well, we'll that's a you. that's a that's a neat thing to think about when we think of truth. And it's funny because so many people will say, "Well, truth can't be known," and I'm like, "Well, hold on for a second. If that's in fact true, how do you know that what you just said is?" true. Um, do, do you find that sometimes if we could just sit down, it seems like everybody wants to be cantankerous and fight, and especially like if it's a gender issue, you're trying to, I wish, I just wish we could sit down more and as people and just talk, mm-hmm. you know, um, how can we better do that as Christians? Cause we're supposed to be the light of the world. I mean, I think the burden of, of being the hands and feet of Jesus are on me as a, as a Christian on, on us as the church. How can we better do what we're doing? Cause, um, it just doesn't seem like what we're doing right now is working very well, especially in American Christianity.
1: Well, I think we need, to, we need to accept, first of all, that we're not going to be perfect at this. I think there's a lot of pressure to try to be perfect okay. and get the gospel out. If we don't do it right, we're going to fail. We're going to fail. We're sinners. We're going to get things wrong. Uh, if you make a mistake, just accept it and do your best next time. People are going to have more respect for you if that's what's going on. So keep that in mind. Mm. I've made plenty of mistakes. I've had to take videos down. I probably will have to take videos down in the future because yeah. I've made mistakes. Yeah. And that's just part of life. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the first thing we need to accept. And then we need to accept that we're not gonna have all the answers. We need to be humble when realizing that there's a lot more we need to learn. Mm-hmm. Then we need to go out and actually learn that stuff. Jesus knew his audience. He knew how to respond to the people he mm-hmm. was talking to. When Lazarus died, Mary got tears, Martha got a sermon. <laughs> okay, He responded to Peter differently than he responded to Philip. Mm-hmm. He, treated people differently based on how he knew them. Mm-hmm. Know your audience, sure. know how to make disciples. It's gonna be different every time. So we need to be humble, We need to, um, and we need to be willing to learn and grow. I think if we start there, there's gonna be a lot better results we're gonna have in the future. Howard Hendricks,
0: a uh, great teacher, um, he coined a phrase from what I can gather. Um, he, he said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a a place for us as Christians to get involved in people's lives before we start telling them how to live and I think when you gain respect with people you know maybe maybe you visit them in the hospital maybe you mowed their yard when they were sick you know where they're like hey man come over and have dinner and all of a sudden now there's a friendship and maybe then there's the question so tell me what it is that you believe I think that is going to be a um, an environment where people are maybe more open to hear than just us us blasting, you know, um, uh, thoughts, would you, agree, would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, that's what Paul did. He spent yeah. time with these churches Yeah, when he was planting, before he moved on, it took time to build these kind of relationships. W- what are some other things in the Old Testament that excite you? Well, I've been studying a lot on the, the uh,
0: documentary
1: hypothesis lately. Okay. Uh, this so is explain a- that to somebody who may not know what that is. So it's the theory that the Pentateuch, as we have it now, used to be four independent different sources, uh, J, E, P, and D. Okay j stands for the Yahweh source okay e stands for the elohim source or p1 sometimes uh, d stands for deuteronomy and p stands for the priestly source now deuteronomy was sort of tacked on at the end with okay. very minor changes but someone took j e and p according to this hypothesis and combined them so there used to be two flood accounts and they stitched them together and they made one flood account there used to be two creation accounts that became genesis 1 and genesis 2. there used to be allegedly two accounts of joseph being sold into slavery they combined them taking every verse from both accounts and stitching them together. And so this is the idea that uh, the Pentateuch was originally just these different sources that someone maybe like Ezra or someone during the Babylonian exile combined them all into one. So that's the hypothesis. And your take on that hypothesis is? I think I'm critical of it. OK. I think I think it's in European scholarship, it's basically dead. They've moved on. They've moved on to redactionary or supplementary hypothesis, fragmentary. Uh, there's a lot of problems with this. Hypothesis. The main one being is is that ancient authors just did not preserve their sources in the text. You know, Numbers mentions the book of the wars of Yahweh in it. We cannot reconstruct the book of the wars of Yahweh just from looking at Numbers. If all we had was Jubilees and Enoch, we know they used Genesis as a source. There's no way we could reconstruct Genesis. Mm -hmm. There's a great scholar named Joseph Weeks, and he asked the question, okay, most scholars think that Matthew and Luke use Mark as a source, Mm -hmm. okay? I'm fine with that. Sure. He asked a simple question, could we reconstruct Mark just from looking at Matthew and Luke? He said, there's no way. You get something that's like 50% as long. It's missing a lot of the same structures. Mm -hmm. You just don't get it because ancient authors did not preserve their sources. Gotcha, okay. So when you're looking at the Pentateuch and you really think you can say, yes, this verse is E and then it jumps to J and then it goes to P later on, that's extremely unlikely. If that is the case with the Pentateuch, it is unlike any other document in the ancient world. And if that's the case, why couldn't it have been an original unique narrative or unique mm-hmm. original work? Because it's so hard for ancient authors to actually preserve sources in their texts. They're not gonna stitch things together like the documentary hypothesis proposes. Mm-hmm. That's just not the way ancient documents did. And if they did with the Pentateuch, it's utterly unique. So you
0: mention that theory and you say in Europe, it has sort of had its day and, and moved on, but I, I'm pretty confident there are some people writing today in America that are using some of this ideas. Do you have
1: anybody that comes to mind? That is- yeah. It's still really popular in America. Uh, Richard Elliott Freeman is a big, strong defender of it. Okay. Uh, so is Joel Baden. Okay. Big, strong defender of it as well. I believe there's another scholar who's written a little bit on it, not too much. Josh Bone, he defends it as well. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure entirely of his view, but uh, another guy, named Stackard, as well, that defends it. Okay. So it has a lot of defenders in the States. Okay. It's... Not as popular in Europe.
0: Uh, well, it's had its day mm-hmm. and moved on and been, you know, criticized. And yeah. um, I would even think that uh, to some to some lesser degree, you've got guys like Pete Enns probably buys into some of that as well. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, because okay. I, I think there's some stuff. But that, there's a, I've always felt like that, I mean, I'm I'm all about, wherever we need to go to study, I'm all about it. I mean, n- nothing bothers me to study. But I have found that when we start Slicing and dicing like a you know a, a Japanese restaurant the, the Bible and throwing it here and there and next thing you know the rice and the zucchini and the carrots are all thrown in it, it, it a lot of times that can really lead to sort of a built-in distrust of what we have a built-in questioning of is anything I'm reading reliable I, I suspect um, your the people that are atheists or agnostics that maybe you you're in contact with, they probably have heard some of these things, the slicing and dicing, and, oh, that's not what it means, and this is not really reliable, and all of that stuff. What do you say to somebody like that that says, yeah, the Bible's not reliable, I mean, you know, everything's sort of stitched together and pulled here and this here. Um, what's your thought to that, or what do you say?
1: Well, first I start to go through some of the evidence. I mean, like Kenneth Kitchen's book on the, on the reliability of the Old Testament just goes through each period and shows, look how well it fits with its time period. Look at the way the treaties are written. They fit with the treaties of other cultures at the same time. So we do have a lot of evidence. And when they say it's all just been stitched together, I say, well, it's really kind of weird. Take the flood account, for example, Noah's flood. They say this was two flood accounts, originally J and P, sometimes non-P and P. But it's typically P, the other one is J. Sometimes J is just called non-P. So you have these two flood accounts. They say it was stitched together. Well, here's the thing. When you break them up into the separate flood accounts, the J account is lacking. Noah never builds an ark, hmm. nor, is he ever, nor does he ever leave the ark. Uh, in one account, Noah sends out a raven, and in the other account, he sends out uh, a dove. But if you study you know, ancient seafaring uh, techniques for releasing birds, they tended to really, release a dove or a, a raven first to sort of just see how, just to follow it in a line of direction. Then they would release doves to see if dry land was close. If the dove just returned to the boat, dry land was not close. So it actually matches seafaring technology as it is. And also, people will note that the flood account is sort of like a retelling of creation in a lot of ways. So the way it reads in Genesis 8 now is it sort of matches just Genesis 1. The waters are over the face of the earth. Then the dry land appears. Then a dove returns with vegetation in its mouth, showing the vegetation has come. Then the dove takes its place in the natural order. Birds of the air, with day, day four. Then you have, noah and the animals exit the ark day six so people have shown it's almost like a recreation it's weird that when we have two flood accounts they don't show this but when they're combined into one they somehow match the structure we see in genesis hmm. one to three genesis nine or eight to nine matches the structure of genesis one to three quite well in a lot of ways yeah so it's weird that when they're these separate accounts they don't have this sort of meaning that all of a sudden voila they're yeah. combined and it- that's actually something gary rendolph okay. said uh, with regards to another flood account in the ancient Near East called the Gilgamesh flood. Now, I don't think Genesis copied Gilgamesh, but they clearly have a same common origin and some sort of ancient narrative that happened. And the Genesis flood account, when they're separated the J and P, these two different hypothesized sources, they don't match the Gilgamesh flood account in the same structure. But Gary uh, Rensberg says, when you combine them, they all of a sudden they match the exact same structure. What an odd coincidence. What do you think about
0: this? Um, you would tend to say, hey we've got these uh, ancient sources that we we look at these and we're able to sort of glean from them some things to understand genesis what if the oral tradition of genesis predated those accounts and those accounts are derivatives of the oral tradition of genesis and actually we could read genesis in light of those not from this way to this way but this way to this way any any thoughts on that i've heard some, I've heard some people proffer up that you know, and it's it, there, There's a legit. I mean, I'm not saying that that's the case. Nobody was there, but mm-hmm. you know, but it, it is a. It's a
1: legitimate train of thought. It is, and let me let me talk a little bit about that because there are a couple flood accounts. There's the Gilgamesh flood account. Mm-hmm. We know that the Gilgamesh author or authors were getting that flood account from another work called the Atrahasis. Mm-hmm. So we know the flood account they got in Gilgamesh came from the Atrahasis, mm-hmm. and we can see evidence of literary borrowing. Mm-hmm. We don't see evidence of literary borrowing when it comes to Genesis yeah. and these flood accounts. However, in Genesis 6, when it says, make yourself an ark, um, it uses three Akkadian cognates or loan words. Mm-hmm. So it shows the flood account has some sort of ancient Akkadian flavor to it. It came from Mesopotamia. You know, that's where all the events of Genesis 1 or, uh, to 11 are taking place over there. Then Abraham leaves and comes to Canaan, and then, then when we're in Canaan. So everything is over there. So we know the flood account is about a flood in that area. And so it has that kind of Akkadian flavor because it has Akkadian loanwords in it. However, there's no evidence of it was that the authors of Genesis one of Genesis six to nine were borrowing from these known other flood accounts because it doesn't show evidence of literary borrowing. Like it does with Gilgamesh and Atrahasis. We can see direct evidence of literary borrowing between these two accounts. Okay. So I would say Genesis, the flood account, came from an actual oral tradition that was handed down to Israel. Mm-hmm. It came from that area. It's very likely there was a flood that happened in that region that inspired these flood accounts, could have inspired uh, Genesis, and then it could have inspired the more fanciful ones like Gilgamesh. Because scholars will read Gilgamesh and they'll be like, this is, this is the arc, the, the vessel in there is a giant cube. It doesn't make sense, that would just sink. The actual arc design in Genesis makes far more sense with actual, you know, how you would actually build a vessel mm-hmm. to survive the storm. So this, and of course, I mentioned the, the releasing of the, the uh, birds. That actually fits with the seafaring technology. You release a raven first, and because um, they can survive on carry-on in the water. You'd follow it to dry land. Then you're gonna re- release a dove. If it returns, dry land is not close enough for you to land anywhere. You have gotta keep releasing it until it finally doesn't come back. That means dry land is close. In the Gilgamesh flood accounts, it's the exact opposite. A ra- uh, the swallow and the dove are released first than the raven. So it doesn't really fit with how you would pragmatically deal with okay. trying to find dry land. So there's little things like that that show the Genesis makes a little bit more sense, that supports it may have a little more reliability there. So somebody who says,
0: well, you know, you just made a comment about the flood and you said that a flood might have happened in that area. Somebody who's astute might go, he doesn't really believe that the flood was over the whole world, and if it wasn't over the whole world, you know, then how do you explain like the Grand Canyon and how do you explain all this stuff? And you know, what do what do you say to someone? Because I mean, I I don't know what your Mm -hmm. take is. Um, but let's talk about the flood. Was there a, was there a flood? Was there a guy named Noah? Um, is that are those things you believe those things to be true? Yes. And then how do you how how would you explain that to someone who's asking about that story?
1: So I'm trying to go on what the Bible says, uh, and I don't think it necessarily shows a global flood. Now I said necessarily is the keyword. It yeah. could, but it doesn't necessarily. And here's one of my reasoning. Uh, in Genesis eight, it says that the waters were receding and the tops of the mountains were seen. Okay, so Noah can see mountains in the distance. Then it says later in Genesis 8, 9, he released a dove and it says, the dove found no place to set its foot for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. Wait a minute, I thought mountain tops were seen. It can't be literal in that verse. Well, yeah, it's using hyperbole. It's the same thing we see later in Genesis. It says the whole world came to buy bread from Joseph. Okay, we know that didn't happen because Jacob did not go. So not the whole world. People in, you know, in, in the Arctic Circle were not coming to mm-hmm. buy bread from Joseph. Mm-hmm. It's hyperbole. That's what the authors of Genesis use. So when it says the whole world has been covered, that could just be another hyperbolic account. And I think a reading of Genesis 8, 5, and 8, 9 have to give us that because if mountaintops are seen, you could still use that language just a couple verses later to say the whole earth is covered, and it can't literally mean the whole earth. Well, it doesn't have to be a t- entire Global flood, it could very well just be a regional flood.
0: Mm-hmm. There's gotta be people that give you pushback to that. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, what, And what do, you, what do you say to them to, to reach out with like an olive branch, to just try to get them to understand that you're not trying to destroy the word of God, mm-hmm. you're, you're not trying to say that you don't believe in Jesus. What do you say to somebody like
1: that? Well notice I just went on what the Bible says. Yeah. I didn't have to appeal to geology, I didn't have to cite any scientific papers. I just said, here's what the Bible actually says. Look at the hyper hyperbole in it. It uses this all the time. Do you really think that people living in Mesoamerica came all the way to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph? Okay, we know Jacob did not go. Even if you think that somehow they did that, they got all the way from the Americas, Jacob didn't go. So when it says the whole world came to buy bread from Joseph, it can't be literal. Likewise, in Genesis 8, it cannot be literal when it says the waters were still in the face of the whole earth, because mountaintops were seen. Okay, what else in the Old Testament excites you? I mean I, there's a lot of stuff that excites me okay. in the Old Testament. Um, mo- most of the stuff I've stuck with, the Pentateuch, Joshua, okay. that kind of stuff, always very interested in this kind of stuff. The Mosaic Law is also very interesting. I think we should not be calling it a law, for example. I think that's been something that's been taken out of context. Okay. Ancient How Nier- so? Okay, well, ancient Near Eastern, uh, we have ancient Near Eastern law codes, the Code of Hammurabi, Code of uh, uh Ur-Nammu, I believe, also has one as well, Middle Assyrian laws. We call them law codes. These weren't really law codes. These were the way the King displayed his, his wisdom. Look at how he would manage justice. There's no examples in ancient Mesopotamia of them going, all right, you did this. Let's call up the code of Hammurabi and see what it says and throw the book at him. They didn't do that. This was their way to s- display their wisdom. The way I compare it is compared to Proverbs. It says, answer a fool not in his ways, lest you become like him. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, ignore a fool and you know he'll be right. Okay, that's not giving you instructions or laws or rules how to deal with a fool. It's trying to teach you what a fool is like. That's sort of what ancient Near Eastern law codes were doing. They were teaching you what justice would look like, what holiness would look like in that world. This is what the Torah is trying to do. It's not trying to say, anytime you have an adulterer, you're going to kill them. Anytime someone commits murder, you're going to kill them. It's saying absolute justice in an ideal world would be this, but obviously pragmatic, you know, we gotta apply a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, roles here. Okay. So we don't have any cases. I mean, you know, the book of the, the Pentateuch mentions having judges around to answer questions for that. So there's obviously circumstances would sort of apply. So scholars like Walton, John Walton that is, other scholars as well, that have written on this quite mm-hmm. extensively, who've said that what it is is it's teaching wisdom and what justice would look like in the ancient Near East. So they would say things like, um, you know, when they were reading this thing, they were not saying, "This is how this is going to be the law of the land." endlessly. They're saying like, this is what you should sort of be thinking about when it comes to justice. So in different places, at one point, the Pentateuch says, "When you go through your field, leave behind some bundles fine for people to pick mm-hmm. up." And mm-hmm. then sometimes it says, "Leave behind just things you've not picked up." Okay, well, that's not a contradiction. It's saying these are different ways you can take care of the poor. Mm-hmm. So take care of the poor. Understand that it's trying to teach justice, it's trying to teach wisdom. It's not saying these are absolute unbreakable laws that have to apply in all circumstances. Now, sometimes they do, like love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's obviously something. But it's things like, you know, gleaning fields, mm-hmm. or dealing with slaves, or dealing with capital punishment. This is about teaching justice. This is not about laying down universal laws that we are supposed to apply. Well, I can give you an example. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Okay. Notice when the prophet Nathan comes, he doesn't say, well, what does Leviticus say? And we know they quote, because he actually quotes, he alludes to that when he's talking about the different sheep, the, uh, the story he uses. He gets an entirely different punishment. It's not what's in the Pentateuch. Hmm. So we know that's how they treated the law. They did not treat it as if it was absolutely laying down these unbreakable things. These punishments are always going to be applied. It's more about teaching justice. It's to teaching them how to be a light to the nations of the ancient Near east. What could they do to show the world that they were devoted to the to one true God? Well, this is how you're gonna display justice. This is how you're going to be a light. And of course they failed. Um, man, thanks for taking some time to chat. Oh, yeah. This has been good. Um,
0: we'll, we'll, we'll do some more of this. Um, this is, this is uh, fun. So uh, once again, thanks man for being here and hope uh, you've enjoyed uh, the time that we've uh, gotten. Maybe saw some things a little differently and heard something that challenged you a little bit. Maybe give you some room to expand your thinking. But thanks uh, so much for uh, watching and listening. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.